Welcome to the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast, where we explore the promises and pitfalls of personalised medicine and ask questions about the ethical and societal challenges it creates. I'm Rachel Horton and I'm here with Gabby Samuel and Lisa Ballard from the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Group at Oxford and Southampton. Today we're talking about newborn genome screening, the idea of analysing the genetic code of babies who seem healthy to try to detect and treat health problems early. This relates a lot to my own research interest of how do we make sense of our genetic code, when and why might different variations in our code become results, so I'm really looking forward to discussing this. Hi both of you, Rachel, it's so nice to be able to ask you some questions about your own research. Could you just start us off by telling us a little bit about the current situation related to newborn screening in the UK and then maybe also internationally as well as a comparator? Sure, so it's done via a heel brick test that's typically done when a baby's five days old and it checks for nine different conditions here in the UK and those conditions are chosen by the UK National Screening Committee as being ones where there's a good test to detect it and it's very much in a child's best interest to have that picked up and treated early before the baby becomes symptomatic. It's quite conservative here in the UK. For example, we only test for six metabolic conditions as part of the newborn screen. In the US, their recommended uniform screening panel has got 20 metabolic conditions on it. And there is some criticism of that in that for very rare diseases, it's it's very hard to build up information on the natural history of a disease and the benefits of early treatment and that kind of thing. So I think there's quite a compelling argument that it's important to look a bit wider and consider what else needs to be screened for. At the moment, the test is ostensibly done under parental consent in that parents are asked to consent to their baby having the test. But there's lots of research on the topic that shows that you know, typically it passes in a bit of a blur. It's seen very much as a as a routine thing that's kind of expected. And often it's only actually when an unexpected result comes of it that it's then sort of revisited and becomes visible in a person's experience. So the tests that are being done at the moment, are they genetic tests or are they just tests for particular proteins? So they're generally biochemical tests, um, so testing for particular proteins. And actually the The test at the moment that involves the most prominent direct genetic element is a screening test for cystic fibrosis. Um, And that's probably the one that currently introduces the most uncertainty in the newborn screening programme that we've currently got. So the first part of that is they'll test for um, immunoreactive trypsinogen. But depending on the levels of that, they might then go on to do some genetic testing. And that genetic testing, the kind of inclusion of that in the screening programme has led to a few people getting this inconclusive result that's called cystic fibrosis screen positive inconclusive diagnosis. So currently the element of the screening program where we've introduced genetic testing on a very well understood, very well characterized gene is the one where currently a few families end up in this very uncertain situation where they get a result for their child and it's not really clear what it's going to mean for that baby growing up. And Felicity Boardman and a colleague did a really interesting paper talking to parents who'd had children diagnosed with cystic fibrosis screen positive inconclusive diagnosis, which I think is called CF-SPID for short. And, And they described this sort of issue of almost being like genetic nomads where people didn't quite know if they fitted in the the kind of healthy child world or the cystic fibrosis world and sometimes would travel between the two depending on what was going on in their child's life at that time. 
I think that's so interesting. Cystic fibrosis was always something that seemed quite definitive. Um, like out of all of the genetic conditions that you look at, you either had cystic fibrosis or you didn't have it. But in this sense, you're suggesting that it's kind of like nomad territory. Is that right? I think certainly in, in some cases, that's right from newborn screening. There'll be some diagnoses that are made that are, are solid and clear. But there are just a few families who are left in this really uncertain territory where there's this anxiety that's been raised about their child's health, but it's not really clear whether that's going to turn into anything. And historically, the care that's been provided to babies in that situation has been really variable. It's ranged from kind of almost nothing to full-on care such that you'd get with a solid diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. And there are now some um, European consensus guidelines that have tried to bring a bit more consistency and, and structure to that process. But yes, I think whilst most of the diagnoses made by the newborn screening programme are very solid. There's certainly a few situations where people end up really in limbo, unsure whether the anxiety that's been raised about their baby's health is ever going to turn into anything. And that's just with nine conditions. It's just so interesting, Rachel, you're talking about like that nomadic status and that kind of limbo. And it makes me think about um, some researchers have coined a term patients in waiting. So patients that kind of have had a genetic test result and that might indicate something happening in their future. Um, and I just wondered how that fits with this new proposal. And um, you kind of talked about cystic fibrosis, but I wonder whether there, there are other conditions that are being discussed as well. So I think that's a... a a hugely interesting question and it depends a lot on what newborn genome screening is actually going to end up involving because I think it's potential that you know we could create a huge number of patients in waiting but genome screening could cover a multitude of options really so it, it's going to start with genome sequencing and that's sometimes described like when you read about it in in the papers or things as, as reading all three billion letters of a person's genetic code. But in, in some ways, that reading analogy is, is quite misleading because it's more like getting a printout of that genetic code and getting a printout of that person's three billion letters, but with no guarantee that anyone's going to even try and read it. And if they do, be able to understand it. And I think the consequences of the newborn genome programme will essentially depend on on how much of the genome book for a person the programme tries to set out to read. Because the wider we look, the more uncertainty we're going to generate. So there's research that looks at genomes of, of healthy adults or, or people who we all kind of consider to be healthy at this stage and finds that, you know, if we did a genomic test on any one of us, we'd probably each have about 50 genetic variations that if we ran it through a, a database of disease causing genetic variations they'd be in there so we've all got stuff that looks a bit worrying and concerning in our genetic code and there's a study recently on UK Biobank that shows that once you start to look at very large numbers of genes in one go for a person you know odds are you'll find something that looks concerning so we've each got about 23,000 genes they found that once you look at 500 or more disease genes most people will have something that looks at least kind of hypothetically a worry and in studies like that in biobank or in studies of of adults who seem healthy we've got the reassurance that well they've grown into healthy adults so it's unlikely they've got lots of different very rare genetic conditions it's really so much harder to make that call on a baby because they won't have had time to grow into loads of the features that might kind of steer you clinically to thinking they've got the 
the condition or not. And I think it just highlights really how little we know about a lot of the genetic code and how it works. The variations that I mentioned in the database of disease causing variation, you know, some of those will be in and that will be incorrect in that that variation won't truly be linked with a disease. Some will be because perhaps it is, but in certain contexts or on a particular genetic background or when you're exposed to a particular risk factor. And I think there's a whole load of subtlety in that and in its interpretation that we you know, still unpicking and has yet to be understood. So I think it's going to be very hard to make sense of what you might find in a newborn baby, unless we're looking at very well understood genes in quite a restricted and conservative way, really. So, I mean, given that, I mean, I really like this idea of reading the book. It's a really nice analogy. But given all of this complexity, what's the idea? Is it to read like quite a lot of pages of the book or just to pull out, you know, specific areas of the genome and look at those in in a lot of detail? That's a really key question. And I think um, it's it's kind of unknown because the Newborn Genomes Programme is still very much in its infancy and is being co-designed with parents, people across the NHS and other experts. But I think the consequences of the programme will be massively different depending on how much of the book they try and set out to read. If they decide to look broadly, that's going to introduce a lot more uncertainty than we currently have from the newborn screening programme and and potentially create a huge number more patients in waiting, like, like you mentioned, Lisa. There have been some studies in America, the Ensite studies that have looked a bit at genome screening in babies. They tried genome screening in a few hundred babies. And with the sort of amount of the book they chose to read, three to eight percent of babies had some sort of finding fed back from that. And from those, there were that, you know, there were several findings that probably were very much in a baby's best interest to know about early. But there were a few others which were perhaps a bit more of a grey area, like, for example, a um, potential predisposition to developing a heart condition where no one can put a number on it. No one knows if it's a that solid a risk. And you that baby could potentially have screening. And in all cases, actually, those variants have been inherited from a parent. That parent could have screening. Perhaps if it came from a grandparent, they could have screening too. But you just think that's a whole lot of screening escalating out to a whole lot of people that's going to cost money and cause anxiety and needs kind of thinking and planning about. A lot will depend on how much they choose to look at of a person's genome and you wonder if they might be likely to take a more conservative approach and look at substantially less of it but then it would be possible to get the data you need to do that sort of analysis without looking at a person's entire genome. That sounds like quite a good idea because otherwise it sounds like this massive risk society which to me as I suppose a sociologist raises quite a lot of social questions. I guess as a psychologist as well, I'm thinking about the psychological burden of results on parents and then how they communicate that to their children later on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it needs so much thinking about, really, because those projects I mentioned in the US, that was a few hundred babies. The Newborn Genomes Programme is setting out to provide this analysis for 200,000 babies. So that's a lot more babies than we were talking about in the US. And I think the, the consequences of it for the health service could be very significant. I think doing health economic analysis on this must be really challenging, actually, because obviously the hope from detecting and treating conditions early, which I think is a great aspiration if you know that there will be benefit in doing that. But the, I guess the hope would be if you do that successfully, that you both the 
baby and family avoid them becoming really ill, but also you save money for the NHS in the longer run because they don't then become really ill and need, you know, all sorts of admissions and things because it's been picked up and proactively treated. And I think that's a great aspiration. But in practice, actually, you know, how often will we end up in that situation? And how often will we end up in situations where people are needing recurrent medical visits or investigations like heart scans or something like that periodically perhaps for a condition that's never going to show itself or never cause them any problem and that decision will very much depend on where they draw the line in terms of reporting results from this kind of thing but the knock-on effects for the rest of the health service for example babies who were born and clearly do have a very significant genetic condition that needs diagnosing early if their genome test is pushed back because labs are dealing with all the kind of work on screening healthy babies or if their clinical genetics appointment takes longer or they have to wait longer for it because so many appointments are filled up with people needing to talk about relatively uncertain or tentative findings that's a real concern so I think trying to find and treat babies with serious conditions early to improve that outcomes is a is a really obviously a really important and positive thing but making sure that the services downstream are resourced such that that doesn't disadvantage a lot of other people in the process I think is going to be hugely important. So my question relates to what you said Rachel at the beginning when you were kind of talking about how um, the consent um, process is a bit of a blur and it kind of it appears like it's you know routine care um, and I'm wondering now if this new screening is introduced and the things that parents will have to to think about and the implications and the kind of the amount of information that parents are going to have to be given to kind of consent to this new test and um, is that something you can comment on? Obviously babies can't make these decisions for themselves parents are going to have to make the decisions in their in their baby's interest but it's the babies who are going to have to live with that decision and have their genome you know as part of this initiative and I think there are huge challenges and when is the best time to ask parents about it I think there's a lot of thought about maybe having those conversations during pregnancy where you perhaps have more kind of time to reflect on it and to engage with all the complexities of it but perhaps the person who you're making those decisions for is also a bit less less tangible at that stage my biggest concern is is will this just be seen as like a better version of the heel prick like because I think on face value if you're like oh you could have this standard test for nine conditions or you could have a test for a whole load of extra conditions it might seem like you know oh well fairly obviously it's better to be tested for as much as you can be tested for Uh, and that's the way it's often described when new politicians are making announcements about it or when it comes up in the news uh, like health secretary and things saying you want every baby to have the best possible start in life by having their genome sequenced as soon as they enter the world and and that's the future kind of personalized preventative medicine and obviously that's the sort of you know very powerful image and you, you know if you if by getting a genome sequence you could do that you know you think many people would want to but I think and and the complexity of undertaking this doesn't mean that it's not not a good idea where we can try and diagnose and treat rare conditions early to try and use genetic technology to do that but I think we have to be really explicit that trying to use technology to make diagnoses earlier comes at a price and that price is a lot more people living with uncertainty and living with questions raised about the future of their baby and all sorts of potential downstream implications in terms of, you know, will that affect their 
prospects growing up or what kind of activities people are comfortable with them engaging with at school and all that kind of thing if some concerns been raised about their health that might actually never turn into anything so how is the newborn genomes program going to decide what to report like where where is it going to place those thresholds in terms of what to report back and what not to it's a really difficult question where the threshold should be for saying like yes this is a useful thing to report back from this genome test and i know it's something um, evidently that the newborn genomes program is it, it is considering very deeply and involving a lot of people in the co-design process i guess you know my question in some ways would be are people who've had uncertain or potentially unhelpful results from genetic testing being included in that dialogue as well in that you know our parents of children with cf speared or you know parents who've had uncertain findings from genetic tests being included in those conversations because i can absolutely see the argument that for you know for example if you if you have a baby with a rare condition that would have been picked up via screening if you were born in the US that hasn't been because you happen to be born in the UK that you know that it feels like you know that aspect of things you can see it, we need to improve from where we currently are but what we're kind of opening up in in trying to make that step into using more extensive genetic testing the capacity to introduce more uncertainty needs to be really kind of headlined in that and if a response to that is actually we're going to take a much more conservative approach to this and we're only going to look at a very limited amount of the child's genetic code i.e kind of only read you know a few lines of the book of the genome then I think it needs to be really explicit that these genomes are being collected but only a tiny bit of it is actually being looked at for the child's direct benefit and really clear conversations as to what's happening with the rest of that data and what's the future going to be around how that's used. So and just to finish up, if you had one take-home message that you could tell people about newborn screening using genomes, what would it be? I think it would be that issue that that breadth and clarity are like in conflict when it comes to genome screening. And the wider you look, the more uncertainty you invite. And moving from nine conditions to many more conditions isn't a sort of simple upscaling of a heel prick test at the wider we look the more kind of patience and waiting we're going to create and the more carefully we need to think about have we planned for that are people prepared for that in consent conversations is the health service funded to deal with all the extra medical interventions that are going to need thank you for listening to this episode of the center for personalized medicine podcast if you'd like to find out more about personalized medicine and its promises and challenges please visit the Centre for Personalised Medicine website at cpm.well.ox.ac.uk.